0: Episode twenty-seven of the Water Break podcast. Here's your host, Heather Jennings. Welcome to Water Break, where we try to bridge the gap between water operators and engineers. This episode, we're going to discuss filamentous bacteria with our guest today, Tony glymph Martin. You may have heard of her books, "A Wastewater Microbiology Laboratory Manual for Operators" and "Wastewater Microbiology: A Handbook for Operators." Tony is a wastewater microbiologist. And a certified operator D level with 40 years' experience in wastewater. I am very excited to have another opportunity to talk with you, especially about filamentous bacteria, Tony. Yeah, that's one of my <laughs> favorites. <laughs> You'll want to stay tuned as well for the Wanda's water tidbit at the end of the program where we share fun and quirky trivia
1: or information on water.
0: Okay, Tony, I think many operators have this love hate relationship with filamentous bacteria.
1: Yep, they manage to always show up and they manage to always have problems with it. So, majority of the time when I'm uh, working with operators, it has something to do with some kind of filamentous bacteria. Yeah. And
0: since I learned so much from your microbiology course that you just held with us, I wanted to cover the filaments <laughs> okay. because, you know, there's, as you said,
1: everyone's going to deal with it sometime Yeah, and this can be kind of intimidating for operators because most are not microbiologists but there are some simple ways to sort of figure out what's going on with your treatment system well shall we start then
0: what are some of the characteristics of these beautiful filaments
1: well, if you are interested in really delving into identifying different types of filaments, there's different things you can look at. Different characteristics mm-hmm. you can look at the shape of the filament. There's different ones like smoothly curved or straight or irregular. If you really want to get sophisticated, you can measure length and width. But I've found over the years that that's not really that necessary. There are other characteristics like septa. Septa is this separation between the two cells in a filament. Some filaments you can see that separation, some you can't. There's like a sheath, it's like a soda straw with the cells inside. Epiphyte, which is this bacteria that's growing along the edges of a filament that makes it look kind of fuzzy. Mm -hmm. And then some branch, some do not. And then one of them is even modal. So these are just little characteristics that you can look at to help with the identification.
0: Okay, so I mean, at least we have a lot of
1: things to look for.
0: Yes. But you, you talked about there being two main different kinds of filamentous bacteria.
1: There's a group that causes sludge bulking, and then there's a group that causes foaming. And generally, the ones that bulk don't cause foam, and the ones that foam don't cause bulking. There's only one filament that actually does both, but for the most part, the bulkers bulk and the foamers foam. I would say there's always that one roommate, right? Yeah.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So let's just cover the
1: difference between these sludge bulking and foaming. Okay. So most filamentous bacteria are associated with low F to M. What I mean by that is when there's low amounts of food. And mm-hmm. the reason why that's so is because that's when there's competition. And so the filaments bacteria kind of respond to what I like to call predation pressure. And so this is a pressure to survive. And so when there's a little bit of food, most of the filaments develop during that time because they're able to survive better than just a little single cells.
0: Yeah, they've got more surface area compared Mm-hmm. OK, so what is bulking? Like when I think of bulking, I think of big chunks of sledge.
1: <laughs> That's the first thing that comes to mind. And I think of bulking. I think that I ate some brioche bread and my stomach bulks. There you um, go. But <laughs> <laughs> That's what I think about. But bulking is just when you have so many filaments that they kind of create this bridging between the flock particles and they they kind of form a netting and it make it difficult for the solids to separate from the liquids. And as you know, Heather, the key to good treatment is that separation between the liquids and the solids. But yeah. what bulking filaments do is that they make that a little bit more difficult and it makes it hard for the solids to separate.
0: Okay. So how does that make that different from foaming?
1: Well, foaming doesn't affect the separation between the liquids and the solids, foaming filaments have a special cell wall and I like to, it's called hydrophobic. I mean, it it resists water and it has kind of a waxy coating on it. So what they do is they have a tendency to float and when they float, they bring up solid particles and bring up air bubbles with them. And so they cause this foam that's on the surface of your clarifiers, on the surface of your aeration basins wet wells they don't really cause a problem if you just have you know just a moderate amount of foam it just looks mm-hmm. ugly it makes it look like we don't know what we're doing in our plant yeah but when it can get pretty bad when you have excessive amounts of foam because it'll spill over the weir and it can start you can lose solids you can even freeze in the winter time and just cause yeah. a kind of a headache in the plant
0: Yeah, I actually visited a plant that they had to keep their aerators on full blow Mm -hmm. as high as it'll go just Mm -hmm. to like keep the filaments down, Mm. which was interesting because they said if they turned them off or if one of them, you know, for whatever search circuit it had turned off, it would overflow over the basins and take over the parking lots.
1: Wow. Yeah, well, that happened in Detroit. We had so much foam that it came out onto the roads and we couldn't even walk through the roads. Yeah, it it can happen.
0: And, you know, when you take out someone's parking lot or the dog park or something <laughs> like
1: yeah, with, with sludge foam. Yeah. Yeah. People, people get kind of upset about that.
0: So I have foaming or I have bulking. Where am I going to grab a sample?
1: OK, so if you're bulking, you generally when you're looking at mixed liquor samples, you always want to look at them at the discharge end of the aeration basin right before it goes into the secondary clarifier. And that's what you do when you're looking at bulking but when you're looking at foaming, you want to make sure you take a sample of the foam because if a filament is causing the foam, it will be in the foam. And there are other things that that cause foaming. And so you want to make sure that you look in that foam to see if it's actually a filament that's causing the foam. Okay. Question. What if I don't know which one it is? What if you don't know which foaming
0: filament it is? Or is it foaming or is it bulking? I'm new to this.
1: Oh, okay. So, well, if it's bulking, then you can just Put some of your sample in a um, cellometer and see if you get a good settling. If you're not getting good mm-hmm. settling, then it's it's bulking. If you don't see good separation, then it's, it's bulking. It could be filaments or it could be something else. So you want to make sure you look at that sample to make sure that it's filaments. <laughs> if it's foaming, then it won't interfere. If you look at your sample in the cellometer, it'll still settle. But you might have some foam just sitting on the surface of the on the top of the liquid. Excellent. Okay, so am I going to make
0: a smear or a wet mount? Like, how do I prep these slides? And I'm talking about a microscope slide.
1: Okay, so when you're prepping the microscope slides... What you'll do for balking and for foaming, you want to make a smear okay. first. You want to make a smear first. And that's just simply putting a set amount of the sample on that slide, kind of smoothing it out as thin as you can, and then setting it aside and letting it dry. And you want it to air dry naturally. You don't want to run it over a flame or anything like that. And here, then here in
0: Arizona, we have no problems with drying <laughs> things out.
1: Believe me, I experienced <laughs> your heat. <laughs> I've never been able to not get in my car and drive because I couldn't touch the steering wheel when yeah, I look we'll your sunscreen there. next time. I promise. Well, well I guarantee you, <laughs> you, if you take one of those slides and just sit it out on the car for a second or sit it outside, just stand out there with it for a few seconds and come back. It'll be dry. There you go. Uh, there you go. <laughs> but you want it to dry because you're going to want to stain it. That's what the mm-hmm. smear is for. But you can also do a wet mount and and with the wet mount, you want to look for some of these characteristics that we talked about earlier, like the shape of the filament. You want to look for to see the shape of the individual cells. You want to look to see if you see branching or motility. Sometimes when you, smear, when you do a smear and you dry it out, it loses some of the good st- structure. So okay. that's why you want to do a wet mount. So a wet mount is just simply taking the same volume of, of the sample, putting it on a slide. But this time you want to use a cover slip. And you put a cover slip on that slide and then you look at it, that under the microscope. And you want to look at it under the highest possible magnification that you have. Preferably 100X, which is the oil immersion lens. But if you don't have 100X, go, go 40X, which is 400 magnification. Can you use immersion oil with any of the other,
0: other than 100?
1: No, the other lenses are called dry lenses. So you mm-hmm. don't use oil with any other lens besides your 100X oil immersion lens. And it should be written on that objective. If you don't okay. see a hundred X or immersion or oil on that objective, you do not use it. Those are dry lenses and they won't work with the oil. Okay. So
0: let's talk about the next step, which would be gram staining. Yes. Uh, th- this is a series of staining with crystal violet, grams iodine, alcohol, and saffronin.
1: Yes. What this stain does, is, it kind of separates the bacteria into two categories. The ones that have fat, like our flock formers, our flock formers have fat on their cell wall because that's what helps them to stick together to form flock. Then there's other types of bacteria that don't have fat. And so what this gram stain does, it distinguishes between the two. The ones that have fat will not turn purple because that fat will be rinsed off with the alcohol. The (laughs) ones that don't have fat will turn purple because the alcohol cannot rinse the stain off. So you have gram positive the ones that don't have fat and you have gram-negative, the ones that do. Okay. What about this thing called gram-variable? Okay. Oh, okay. So gram-variable filaments. These are filaments that have a sheath. And so the reason why it looks gram-variable is because parts of it is pink and parts of it is purple. Uh, So parts look positive and parts look negative. And so it's generally the cells on the inside of the sheath are positive. So those will be purple and then the sheath itself will turn pink. So that's how you get scram variable i'm like once again it's always that one uh (laughs) odd relative yeah (laughs) yeah yeah, you're just like yeah that's uncle joe (laughs) uncle joe yeah
0: (laughs) okay so Mm -hmm. i've grabbed the sample i've stained it and now we start investigating what we're seeing and i really liked how you did kind of a an elimination process
1: right right right. so let's go through that Okay so what what I first do is I look at the gram stain because there's two filaments that's gram positive there's three filaments that's gram variable and all the rest of them are gram-negative. So the one of the first steps to do is to do a gram stain. At least you know which category is. If it's gram-positive, it's relatively easy because you only have to pick between two. If it's gram-variable, that's easy because you only have to pick between three. But if it's gram-negative, then we know that we got to do a little bit more work and look for a few more characteristics. Sounds like we're going to be there for a while. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Let's talk about the positive ones then. Okay. So the gram-positive ones are nastocoita, and microthics parvicella. They're very distinctly different from one another. So it's really pretty easy to distinguish between the two. They're gram positive, so they're gonna be purple. Like I said earlier, most filaments like low F to M, but it's something else that's gonna determine what gives that particular filament a dominance. Mm-hmm. So phonostacoida is low F to M and it likes starches, like potato waste, or and this one is mostly you see it. Dominating mostly in industrial systems. You rarely see it mm-hmm. dominating in municipal systems. But it looks like a purple beaded necklace. So it's really easy to distinguish between microthrix, which looks like purple spaghetti.
0: Da da! <laughs>
1: yeah. So if you got purple <laughs> beaded necklace when you do a gram stain, then it's automatically Nasdaqoida. And so you know you probably got some issue with some starch waste. Microthrix, on the other hand, is that one cousin that's both a bulker and a foamer. And so yeah. when you see this one, you'll it'll, it'll just see purple spaghetti and what it likes. It likes the low f m of course. But this one really loves our animal and vegetable greases, oils and fats. So if you got lots of restaurants and cooking grease and oils, it, mm-hmm. it loves that. And you mentioned that it, it likes colder temps. What is cold to a filament? Well, the wintertime to us. So okay. generally, if you have foaming in the wintertime, it's due to microthrix parvacella because it it has this unique ability to break down greases and oils when they're more in a solid phase, when they're thicker. In the summer, they're, they're more dissolved. In the wintertime, they're more solid. And so it has a unique ability to break down greases and oils under colder conditions. So usually if you're going to have foaming in the wintertime, it's usually this one. Okay. But what if I have foaming in the springtime? It might be this one too. That's why you need to do a gram stain uh-huh. and mm-hmm. look at it. Okay. See if you see purple spaghetti. Yes, (laughs) it it
0: looks cool under the microscope. I swear.
1: (laughs) Both of them do. Okay, so let's talk about gram variable. Okay, so there are three filaments that's gram variable. And that's type double 41, type 0675 and type 1851. And you, you have to say all the zeros, right? Yes, you do. You can't just scrap the zeros and say 41 because that's not its name. That's just like that's like calling me Knee without the tone. and saying Tony. It's the whole name. Got it. I have to say the whole name. I'm calling you Heath. You know.
0: Oh yeah, no. (laughs) (laughs) So it better be Heather.
1: (laughs) Yeah. So it's got to be Heather. So that's its name is zero zero four one. So zero zero four one zero six seven five and eighteen fifty one. And the unique thing about these three is that. They all like the same conditions. They all like low f m and low nutrient conditions. And the other unique thing about the three of them is that they all have epiphyte. So they all have that attached bacteria growth on them. So they look fuzzy. 0041 is the larger one. 0675 is the medium one. And 1851 is the skinny one. But who cares which size it is? Mm-hmm. If we see a fuzzy gram variable filament, then we know that the issue is low F to M and low nutrients. They look alike, they're just different sizes, but they all have the same cause. And I'm really glad that we can just lump them all together because I'm like, it looks fuzzy, but
0: how thick it is compared to everyone else, like my microscope doesn't have that measuring on it.
1: (laughs) Or or you can't remember with your eyes, it's just extra work and it's, it's unnecessary work, especially if they all just like the same thing. So- I'm looking under the microscope and I've done my gram
0: staining and it's unfortunate that it's negative.
1: Oh man, that means that you
0: got to do a little bit more investigating. All right. So that's when we're going to start using the Nizer staining.
1: Well, you can. You can do it if you have time to do it, but I don't think the Nyser stain is necessary. It's an additional tool, but the only thing that the Nyser stain is going to help you with is going to let you know if you have 0092 or 021 in because Nosticoida is not, is the uh, gram positive one. So you can do a Nyser stain. The Nyser stain will help you at least eliminate two other filaments from it, but all the other ones are Nyser negative, just like the gram negative. So Nyser looks blue. The Nyser stain, what it does is it stains polyphosphate. So any filament, there's lots of filaments that store polyphosphate, that store phosphorus. And so not just the PAOs or biological phosphorus removal bugs, but this is, this is a unique ability of lots of different types of microorganisms. And so what the Nyser stain does is it stains any polyphosphate or phosphorus that's in the cell wall or in the cells of the filament. Uh, Nosticoida is positive, type 0092 is positive, and type 021N are are positive also. Okay. 092 looks like little purple blue sticks. It likes greases and oils and fats just like Michael Tix does. Mm-hmm. And then type 021N it looks like stacked hockey pucks. And so it's really a unique filament. It's a very easy filament to identify because it's the only one that looks like a bunch of stacked hockey pucks. But it also likes septic waste. It likes waste that's deficient in nitrogen, sort mm-hmm. of low deal dish conditions. Those organic acids and things. And organic acid, yes. And that could come from
0: just basically septicity or here in Arizona, we have some lines that are very shallow yeah, and you get anaerobic digestion on the way to the plant. Yes, yes. And, you know, you get organic acids out the wazoo from that.
1: Yeah. And you also, it, it, they're notorious in biological phosphorus removal systems because they have mm-hmm. that anaerobic zone or anoxic zone right prior to aeration basin. And there's lots of organic acids being produced. And you also, if you have an anaerobic digester and mm-hmm. you're, you're bringing that supernatant back to the head of the plant, A lot of times you'll be bringing in fatty acids, organic acids. And so they can favor the growth of those microorganisms also. All
0: right. Positive is blue. Negative is brown. Right. It's kind of a brownish color. Okay, And these filaments are split and they can have a sheath or not have one.
1: Correct. If you've looked and they're not gram positive, it's not nicer positive. If it's gram negative or nicer negative, then we got to look for some other characteristics. So we can look for sheath. We can look for attached growth, which is called epiphyte, or we can look for sulfur granules or motility. So these are four other characteristics we can look for if they didn't pass the gram test or the Nyser test. Okay, so these are the funk outs. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) They're both negative. I'm joking. So those
0: with the sheath and the epiphytes, is there anything like specific to know what they
1: look like? Yeah, so you have four filaments that have sheath with the epiphyte. Mm -hmm. And that's type 1701, type 0041, you should remember that one, type 0675 and type 1851. And so if we're going to take this step, we've already eliminated 0041, 0675 and 1851 because those are the ones that are gram variable. But the only thing that this step would help us to identify is type 1701. And the thing that's unique about type seventeen O one is very thin. It has uh, sausage shaped cells, but its attached growth is very long. So very where the hairy. other ones are, very have very long hair. You know, mm-hmm. when the the other three are just kind of fuzzy and short, little short attached growth. But seventeen O one is thin. They're underachievers
0: in comparison, yeah. right? Yeah.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so 1701 has long, thin, attached growth. And it likes low deal, so it likes low oxygen. All right, now, if you have a sheath, but you don't have epiphytes. So there's three. There's three filaments that have a sheath without epiphytes and that's Spirotilus natans, that's Styratrix and that's Haloscomenobacter hydrosis. I really don't like these names. I, I oh gave God. them much better. I gave them <laughs> I'm much not going to try to say them three times. Yeah. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, those are the, these are the three that have a sheath, but they don't have the attached growth. And most of them are basically low do. So it's generally low dio is the main theme of these. Spirotilus natans looks like sausage links it, within that sheath. It can have false branching. It likes low DO for the applied loading. Thyrotrix, it's kind of barrel shaped cells inside the sheath. And it also likes low DO organic acids, septic waste. to hydrosis is a really thin, skinny, looks like pins in a pincushion. And it also likes low DO.
0: Yeah, I'm still not going to say those names three times <laughs> fast.
1: <laughs> no. So I've
0: looked through all of this. You know, I've grammed and I've nizered, <laughs> and there's
1: still two left. So how do I know which one's which? Well, also, we can look at the sulfur granules. Mm -hmm. So the Thyatrix has sulfur granules. These particular uh, filaments have the ability when there's uh, reduced sulfur compounds available. And that's when it's extremely low DO or septic Mm -hmm. waste they will take and they will stir that sulfur and use that as a food source. And so you can literally see these sulfur granules. They look like little lighted, sparkly, colorful dots inside the filament cell, the whole length of the filament. And so there's uh Begetoa does that. Thyrotrix has sulfur granules, type 021N mm-hmm. and type 0914. So you can just look for sulfur granules. And so if you see sulfur granules, it doesn't matter which filament it is. Because if you see sulfur granules, that means that you have septic Mm waste, And so once we take that step, now we've eliminated just about everything from the list. Vegetora, of course, is the one that has sulfur grains, but it's also the only one that's modal. So it swims. But the only one that's left over after all of those steps would be type 0961. It's not gram positive. It's not nizer positive. Doesn't have a sheath. Doesn't have attached growth. It's not modal, but it just looks kind of like Almost sausage-shaped cells, and mm-hmm. it likes the low soluble BOD. That makes me think
0: this one's not even trying.
1: Yeah, like, <laughs> rarely do we see a problem with this one. I've seen it; you'll see it here and there in a plant, but I've never seen it dominate in any mm-hmm. treatment system. Now, I wanted to cover real quick the difference between true and false branching because the
0: first time I saw it, I couldn't tell. Oh, okay. Yeah. So you know, when we look, when we're looking at it and looking a little more closely. It looked like the false branching, like the, the filaments were just close to each other, touching, but they were still yeah. separate.
1: Well, here's a tip. Mm-hmm. There's only one filamentous bacteria that has true branching, and that's nocardia, and it's a foamer. Oh, okay. Any other? don't worry about it. <laughs> no, Any other filament that you see in there that has true branching will most likely be fungi. And fungi are very large compared, you know, compared to filamentous bacteria. So the only filamentous bacteria that has true branching is Nocardia. So okay. if you see any other type of branching, it's probably false. And then that's Parabasnaeans. All right, I will believe. <laughs> so we've covered the bulking
0: filaments. Mm-hmm.
1: What about those foamers? Okay, so the foamers are easy. All foaming filaments are all of them are associated with excess greases, oils, and fats. All of them are associated with low f to m and all of them have hydrophobic cell walls, which means they have this waxy coating that helps them to float. There's only three. So if you're foaming, it's easy. There's only three. And so you come in and you do your gram stain. You, you wanna, first thing you wanna do is grab a sample of that foam. You wanna make a smear. You wanna do your gram stain. That's all you have to do for foam. And then if it's gram positive, it's mycothrix or nocardia. If it's gram negative, it's type 1863. So, all of these filaments, like I said, they like low FDM, greases, oils, and fats, but it's something else that's going to determine which one dominates. So, when you do the gram stain, you have mycothrix and nocardia, it's gram positive, and you have 1863 that's gram negative. Mm-hmm. So, if you do 1863, it looks like a pink dash line. It's very easy to identify, pink dash line, and it likes a lower pH. So when you start seeing a decline in your pH and you got the greases, oils and fats, the low F to M, then, and you get foam, then it's probably type 1863. If it's gram positive, it's microthricks or nocardia. Microtrix, we already talked about, looks like purple spaghetti and it likes uh, animal vegetable, greases, oils and fats. Mm-hmm. And the other one is the true branching one, which is nocardia which just kind of looks all like totally branched it's net. My daughter called it, a, it looked like a firework. Yeah. Where it yeah. had so many things coming off of it. Yeah, exactly. Yep.
0: And, and exactly. yes, I do torture my children. I'm like, look what I saw today.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah. they got They got to learn. So I have to ask, is it possible to have multiple things
1: all at once? Oh, yes it's no problem if you see just a tiny bit of different ones. But if you have significant amounts of more than one filament, then that what that says is that your conditions are variable and that they're always variable. And so you create conditions at one time, at part of the day, conditions are favorable for one and at another part of the day, conditions are favorable for the other. So that means that you have a consistently yeah it see sounds like an oxymoron, yeah, but consistently yeah. variable conditions coming into your plant it's so much so that it can favor different filaments at different times.
0: Uh, see, I would see that more in like the food processing or beverage industries where they're going from one thing to the next thing to the next thing, maybe all in the one week,
1: yeah, exactly, exactly, yeah. and I have seen that in those industries,
0: yeah, okay, and. Big question, because the number one thing I hear is how to control them. Oh, you just throw some chlorine in.
1: Oh, that's just the bandaid. That's the bandaid. <laughs> You're just going to keep on spending money on chlorine. And I've seen plants operate that way. You know, chlorine, the filaments get up, <sighs> chlorinated down. Filaments get up, chlorinated down. But the best thing to do is to figure out what is it that's causing the problem? Mm -hmm. What's causing the problem? What's happening that my system is favoring the growth of this filament? And then try to control that. And I totally understand that as operators, especially now, we've got unique sets of circumstances where we have to have extended aeration or longer sludge ages so we can nitrify. And then you have (laughs) other conditions for biop. And so it's going to Come to a point where we're going to have to tolerate some filaments in our plant, and it's not going to always look as pretty as it used to look. But to the extent that it's possible, it's always better to look at the conditions that's causing the problem and then make those corrections rather than just apply the band aid all the time. Because chlorine doesn't just single out the filaments, even though oh, no. they might get the most of it, but you're still impacting the rest of the plant. And so if you can avoid doing that, I would avoid doing it. And I try to see if we can uh, figure out the cause and handle it that way. I
0: had uh, one gentleman who was just very desperate to knock his down. And he said he chlorinated for three days through the RAS and the, the percentage made my eyes swim. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, So how's it functioning? He goes, Well, not too well. I'm like, Because everything's dead.
1: Yeah, you're killing, <laughs> it it, you're killing it all. You're killing it, all. it This is chlorination is like chemotherapy for. Mm-hmm. Uh, for wastewater treatment plants everything so, goes down yeah so it it harms other functions so if you can avoid it i would avoid it and just try to handle it by doing some controls and you just got to understand you have to be patient when you make changes you can't expect to see a, a change tomorrow it's usually going to take 2 to 3 sludge ages to see some changes so don't make a change today and then say oh it's not working and throwing some chlorine just you have to have some patience, too.
0: OK. And what other process controls can you do? Well, I, mean, I remember one of the things you said, it's going to look worse before it looks better. So,
1: yeah, sometimes the most important thing is most of them love low F M. So the, the one of the first things that most of the time we're going to do is to increase our wasting. That's usually the first thing we do is to increase our wasting as much as we can to maintain the sludge age that we need. That's usually the number one thing to do is that if it's greases and oils, then you need to have some grease control. And I'm not talking about hot, uh, hot water that emulsifies hot water it. to melt, it. Yeah, to <laughs> melt it, the grease down. And then also if it's low DO, then, then pop them to the DO. And I know a lot of people are trying to save on energy costs and all that kind of stuff. But then you got to balance. Is it energy costs or is it chlorine costs? You know, so they're aerobic. They need the air. They need the oxygen.
0: Yeah. I have seen some systems where they really just need a mixer to move that oxygen mm-hmm. through those dead zones. Yeah. Yep. They don't need a yep. new aerator. So that would save them some money.
1: Yeah. And that's another thing, just to, to make sure you don't have any dead zones and you got mm-hmm. good circulation and good mixing. And and uh, because sometimes you can just have those little dead zones. So you're just breeding filaments right in that little dead zone. In the corners. <laughs> yeah. In the corners. Good <laughs> maintenance. Good maintenance. <laughs> <laughs> oh,
0: now you're talking about work, Tony.
1: Yeah. Uh, huh. All right. So, what other
0: lessons learned or things, you know, anecdotes you'd like to share?
1: My biggest thing is, as operators, let's not just do things to do things. Just to, like, for instance, in the winter time, increase your bugs because they move slower, you know. Mm-hmm. Or just, I had a case where the operators would every winter they increase their bugs, but they increase their bugs because they said, "Why well, it's cold? They it takes more bugs to do the work," but they didn't realize that the food was going down in the wintertime so they didn't mm-hmm. actually need to increase their bugs. so i just say to the operators don't just do these rules of thumbs to have these rules of thumb just have an understanding as to why you're doing these things and then i think things will come out a whole lot better
0: no i 100 percent agree and i'm sure you've seen some pretty scary foaming situations <laughs>
1: <horrible. Yeah>. okay. <laughs> <laughs> told you we almost got lost in the foam couldn't even walk down the road because it was so much it had police yellow tape up and down the road because of Ugh. the foam one good thing though i want to one thing i want to say for sure is if you're foaming and if it's nocardia you do not use chlorine with that oh yes yes yes, yes. You do not use chlorine with that because the the what the chlorine does is it causes the the nocardia just to literally have babies and break back down to the size of your little flock formers and then those babies are going to turn into adults and then the adults it's going to cause the foaming it's the adults that cause the foam and so with with nocardia you don't want to use chlorine with that particular filament the best thing that you can do is shorten your mean cell residence time and to take that foam off the top of the tanks Because as long as it's sitting on top of the tanks, it's breeding because it's a soil bacteria and it's used to being dry. It doesn't have to be in the water to live. And so long as it's sitting there in that foam, it's dropping babies back down. So you want to make sure for nicardia, you want to just take that foam off the top and land spread it somewhere and not sending it back to the head of the plant and not chlorinate that particular one.
0: Hearing you say it drops babies back in the water sounds kind of alien
1: Yeah, it is alien. (laughs) It it, it is like alien invasion. Yeah, their their, their branches are breaking up into little parts and sending this little spores back down into the mixed liquor to live. So it's an alien invasion. There you go. There you go. (laughs)
0: Oh gosh, Tony, I I know we went through this kind of quickly. Yeah, I know you usually teach this over like a day or something. But (laughs) yeah, it's a lot. I I know it's a lot, but I greatly appreciate it because it kind of gives us kind of an
1: overall view of what to do and that there's answers. Yeah. And then try it, just try it. You know, don't be intimidated by it. And the more you do it, the better you'll get at it. And I tell the operators I work with, I'm like, even if you don't know what the name is, just give it a cute name and know what that looks like. Hey, that's what I did.
0: Yeah. Mm -hmm. Which one was Pearly again? That was the... Pearly uh, was
1: Nostakota. That's the one that was like purple beaded. Yeah, Pearly. And I had uh, Curly. Curly was uh, Microthricks because it was smoothly curved. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Or Bob. Yeah, Bob. <laughs> I had Harry, Harry, Harry one, Harry two, and Harry three. Those were the, the ones with the fuzzy filaments. So,
0: I love it. Yeah. I love it. I uh work with the Scots when he's like, I would call it Hamish, and I'll do it. Oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, Tony. Thank you again for sharing oh, that with welcome. us. You're welcome. I, I love talking with you. Yep. I- Thank you so much. Now we're going to move into the odd part as if (laughs) filaments giving babies and stuff isn't odd enough. This is the Wanda's Water Tidbit. And this is part of the podcast where we share something fun and unusual and sometimes brilliant, but I wouldn't call this one brilliant. (laughs) Yeah. Because today we're going to talk about the phenomenon of why so many bicycles end up in water, like underwater. I, I remember as a kid thinking it was just an odd thing. You know, why would someone do that? But I was reading an article by NPR that asked a question and they investigated it. And my one experience that really sticks in my head was uh, as a kid in Japan, in Okinawa, my dad rescued one of these abandoned bikes that was on the coral reef. And we just figured it had washed up and we fixed it up and used it for years. But I've also heard of bikes showing up in large water and sewer mains. Wow. And I have no idea how.
1: Why would you put it in the sewer? I don't know, Tony. (laughs) (laughs) Can can you just go take it to an
0: alley if you didn't want it anymore? I know. Or just put a for sale sign on it. Someone will
1: steal it. I mean, come on. (laughs) Just give it to somebody.
0: Yeah. I don't know why this happens, but the city of Amsterdam actually deals with this a lot because they're actually one of the world's leading bicycle cities and they have canals all over the place. Mm. So apparently it's the ideal environment for dunking or drowning your bike. Is that a sport? You know, (laughs) dunking or drowning your bike. (laughs) I think there are are too many videos online and I'm not advocating doing it at all. So we're not going to recommend any of the videos. But for Amsterdam, it's become such a big problem that they've actually developed a public works or municipal core of people that they call bicycle fishermen.
1: Get out of here.
0: Yeah. And these employees dredged the bicycles out of the canals. One year, they dredged 15,000 bicycles.
1: I am just trying to wrap my mind around why you are dunking a bike. What is the thrill of it? Are they still on the bikes when they're doing it? (laughs) (laughs) I'm just just curious. What's the thrill? (laughs) All I do is walk past the water and throw it in. I don't don't understand what... uh, Oh, maybe I'm not meant to. Yeah, no. Uh, well, you know, Amsterdam's not the only city that deals
0: with this. This is Paris and Tokyo, Melbourne, London. I mean, like anywhere there's water. And what's interesting is the bikes can build up so much that in the waterways that they scrape the passing boats. And oh, oh. locals call that bike fishing when that happens. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I I still don't get it either. I'm just thinking Amsterdam is a good place to be selling a bicycle. If you know most of it's going to be in the water and people are going to have to buy new ones, that's a good place to sell bicycles.
1: I think people should go there and fish for bikes and then take them home and sell them. Have it it as a job. Yeah. What the article was talking about is that most of the incidents were
0: chalked up to the growing ride shares. So they, they look disposable. No one owns them, you know, general vandalism theft. But my favorite was drinking while
1: biking. <laughs> so the bike fell in and the person didn't. Is that I what happened? I, I don't know. <laughs> is the bike drunk or is the person drunk? <laughs> Maybe it's a little both, Tony. I don't know. <laughs> I just said that I'm like, OK, don't drink well, and drive. Don't drink and bike. Well, look, Heather, I just got back from Arkansas and I was walking down and um, hot springs and mm-hmm. there were police everywhere and there were uh firemen and there were ladders coming up out the sewers and and it was news meet news crews and and I asked what happened and they said that the, at the storm drain someone walking down the street saw a man's hand and the man was waving at the storm drain saying help 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 and then when they got the man out the pulled him out the storm drain he said, "My brothers are in there. My brothers are in there." And so the what? the the firemen were running around trying to at different manholes trying to find the rest of his family. And so I guess if people can just go down there with their families, I guess you can throw your bikes into the sewer too. I guess
0: I don't even know what to
1: say. <laughs> I don't know what to say. I don't know why were they there down there in the first place. I don't. I don't understand that any more than I understand why people dunk their bikes. Well, Tony, I always learn something. <laughs> new with you <laughs> yeah, well, me too i that's, that's gonna, i'll be scratching my head on that one
0: yeah i mean they did it one time in amsterdam in the 1930s just to get keep the bikes out of the nazis hands but it just seems more logical to me to sell it as scrap Oh, leave it or sell it <laughs> just leave it put a sign on it to a good home kind of thing Ah, <laughs> oh, anyways Well, Tony, once again, thank you so much for joining (laughs) me. I always learn something new in our conversations. There's always something fun to share. Um, Well, look, maybe those guys that was down in the sewer could have used one of those bikes to travel down in the sewer. Oh, Tony, we are not even suggesting that one. (laughs) because someone's okay. going to try it okay.
1: <laughs> okay that's
0: not something we want to condone <laughs> and listeners as always if you'd like to get a hold of tony or check out our website please visit our show notes <laughs> all right thanks okay. and until next time okay, <laughs> okay Heather. <laughs> bye 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 thank you for listening to the water break podcast brought to you by Probiotic solutions Probiotic Solutions offers a broad spectrum line of biostimulants and nutrient products for bioremediation of water, wastewater, and soil. You can find more information about our products and the show notes for this podcast at probiotic.com.